Welcome to Inside Politics from the Irish Times. This is Harry McGee standing in this week for Hugh Linehan. On today's podcast, it's COVID and it's lockdown and it's Christmas and perhaps it's another lockdown after that. To talk about the ongoing COVID situation, I'm joined by the stars of our political team, Jennifer Bray. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning, Harry. And our political editor, Pat Leahy. Hi, Harry. First of all, I suppose it was another dramatic uh, weekend and another dramatic week, and we've had plenty of them this year. From the time Neffet advice received on Thursday, we had this extraordinary sequence of events over the weekend where ministers privately balked at the suggestion that uh, the country should go into level five and, God forbid, go into level five for a period of six weeks. But then, lo and behold, by the time Monday evening arrived, that's indeed what happened. We went into level five for a period of six weeks with some concessions and not quite as draconian or arduous as the lockdown that we had in March and April, but still pretty severe. So perhaps, Pat, could you really rattle through what happened over those crucial days and perhaps in those crucial hours on Monday when what looked like level four plus for four weeks suddenly transmogrified into level five for six weeks. So I think there's three important staging points over those days that you talk about there, Harry. The first is the advice from Neffed, and that comes after the Neffed meeting on Thursday, and it's transmitted to the government via a letter on Thursday night. And that advice, again for the third time in two weeks, is unambiguously that the government should immediately institute a level five lockdown for six weeks. As I say, this is the third time that Neffet had delivered this advice to the government in formal terms and presumably on several more occasions informally over the previous two weeks. And we've discussed previously how and why the government elected not to take that advice. But on this occasion, the warnings were even starker than they had been previously. So the next stage then, as uh, as per your request, Harry, rattling through this uh, at a rate of knots, the, the next important stage is a meeting in government buildings on Saturday between the relevant ministers, some of their advisors and uh, the public health experts from Neffed. That takes place on Saturday afternoon. And it's at that stage, I think, that it becomes clear that the government's resistance to immediately instituting a lockdown is uh, is crumbling. Uh, albeit at that stage that Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, Minister for Public Expenditure, Michael McGrath, are opposed at this stage to going straight into a level five lockdown. The Health Minister, Stephen Donnelly, is opposed to going into a level five lockdown. And the position taken by Michal Martin, Eamon Ryan at this stage isn't clear. But it's also at this stage that it becomes clear that Tonishta Leo Varadkar has changed his mind and that some form of uh, of a more stringent lockdown, whether that be a level four and a half or a level five, is going to be inevitable. And the third 
decisive stage then in this process, which leads us to Monday night, is a meeting on uh, between more or less the same dramatist persona on uh, on Monday morning, where it's decided that there's no point in going to a level four and a half. They will go to a level five, albeit a soft level five, with a couple of get outs uh, from the routine level five or the, the, the level five that has been advertised in the government's uh, living with COVID plan. And it's at that stage then that those decisions are taken right we're going to go to level five we're going to uh, announce it tonight it's going to be for uh, for six weeks and it will take uh, effect from uh, the middle of the week so those are the three stages i think in the decision uh, the three most important stages in the decision making process of course there are informal discussions and many phone calls and so forth taking place all over the weekend but i think if we were to try and put a structure on it those are the three staging points in the decision making process Okay, before I move on to Jennifer, Pat, just one question. What do you think spooked the cabinet? What do you think was the thing that really jolted them into action uh, to agree to elevate from level four, which they kind of maintained for most of the weekend, uh, to level five, which crystallised on Monday afternoon? Okay, so I think there are two tracks along which this decision-making process um, uh, takes place. The first is that the public health advice is stronger and more unambiguous and more in a way cataclysmic or apocalyptic maybe, uh, not to get too carried away about it, than had been the case previously. So they're more or less being told very clearly by the public health experts that if you do not do this, you will, we will be left with thousands of cases a day by the time we get uh, to December. They're also told that if you do not do this, our modelling is clear, and the modelling presented by F- Professor Philip Nolan from Maynooth, that our modelling is very clear. It's a window into the future. And unless you do this now, you are going to have to do it from a position of much greater weakness in a couple of weeks' time. So essentially, they're saying to uh, to the government, you must act now or the situation or you will be forced to act in a couple of weeks when the situation is uh, is much worse. So the 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 second and of course behind all this in terms of you know this public health track on which this part of the decision making process is taking place is the appalling vista for the uh, uh, for the government of the health system being overwhelmed by numbers and although numbers uh, and, and you know critics of the decision have maintained this all along that if you look at the hospital admission numbers if you look at the ICU admission numbers if you look at the death rates from the virus it's very clear that something different it's a different experience than we were having in uh, in March and April when the first lengthy lockdown was instituted when people were looking at what had happened in northern Italy and in Bergamo, place like that, and uh, think whatever happens and whatever the cost, we must prevent that from happening here. So the spectre of this happening again is raised by the uh, by the public health uh, experts, and this is one of the things that most spooks the ministers. Notwithstanding the fact that we're not really seeing by that stage the sort of pressure which might uh, which you might think. 
uh, would uh, would would have that sort of terrifying effect on uh, on the politicians. So we're not seeing hospitals showing any signs of being overwhelmed. We're not showing the ICUs showing any signs of being overwhelmed. And indeed. The HSE boss, Paul Reid, who's attending these meetings as well and is briefing the health minister on a constant basis, is saying over the weekend that, yes, the system is under pressure, but no, we are not seeing that it is being overwhelmed. And they're also saying privately to ministers that, look, we have got very significant capacity left in the system and we have the capability of very quickly increasing that capacity through the use of um, of of private hospitals and other measures, as was put in place in the spring, though ultimately uh, though ultimately not used. But there's no question that that is the other part of the public health imperative that the spectre of the um, of the health system being overwhelmed is raised uh, is raised, and in fact is is you know very clearly and explicitly predicted by the public health experts. At the same time, this is the other track that the decision-making process is taking place on, I think, uh, is that they are politicians and so they are thinking about the political consequences of, uh, of holding out and being proved to be wrong. So if they move now, they are thinking, well, you know, there's... Uh, you know, the politi- the potential political downside of taking, you know, uh, of taking on another lockdown is very significantly less than the po- possible political downside of being shown to be wrong in a few weeks and having to do what the public health experts are telling them they will have to do, which is to institute a lockdown which maybe goes through Christmas and from a much weaker position than they currently find themselves in. Yeah, and as you pointed out in the Digest yesterday, uh, if they were wrong, they would be the Grinches who ruined Christmas. Uh, Jennifer, Pat, uh, in his uh, very uh, succinct uh, uh, summary of all the events there. Not that succinct, as well. Uh, relatively succinct, Pat, from your point of view. Um, in his comparatively succinct summary there, Jennifer uh, referred to the role of Leo Varadkar and the decisive role that he played. And we're just going to kind of explore the dynamics of Cabinet now. Um, because two weeks ago, uh, Leo Varadkar was very decisive in a very different manner. And we're going to play that clip now. And we decided not to accept the, vi- the advice at this time for three reasons, three very important reasons, yeah. and I'd like to outline them. Uh, first of all, the wider societal impact uh, of a level five lockdown. 400,000 people unemployed, tens of thousands of businesses that may never open again, disability services, mental health issues, addiction services, social, social isolation, mental health, all of those issues. Um, Secondly, it was not in line with the plan that the government had agreed with NEFIT, which is a stepwise plan where you go step by step in terms of actions and the triggers that are there for Level 5 were not met in our view. There was no sudden change in the last three days uh, that legitimised a move from, from two to five. But let me give you the third reason this is important too. Uh, Neffet's assessment uh, that our hospitals were imminently facing the possibility of being overwhelmed, our ICUs and and our beds, um, was not shared uh, by the CEO of the HSC uh, and the HSC board were not consulted on on this. Um, Where are we in terms of hospital capacity? And this is really important. Uh, Since the start of the year, an extra 60 or so ICU beds added, 22 in ICU tonight, um, most not requiring ventilation. An extra 800 beds added since St. Patrick's Day, 150 people in those beds with COVID, to, with COVID tonight, and hundreds of more beds coming on stream. So that, that assessment is not shared by the HSC. So I think three okay. very, good, very good reasons to say not yet. That was Leo Varadkar speaking, uh, of course, on the Claire Byrne live show only a 
fortnight ago, or a little over a, a, a fortnight ago. And he set out three reasons there, uh, Jennifer, why there shouldn't be a, a, a move to level five at that particular time. He referred to 400,000 people being left unemployed, uh, to this going against the framework. It was jumping from level two to five. And he said the incremental nature of the framework meant that they should just jump one stage at a time. And the HSE said it would not be overwhelmed, uh, even if there was an increase in stages. That still pertains. The HSE is still saying it won't be over- overwhelmed. What we've seen now is a, is a jump that's not incremental, uh, that's going from three to five. And also uh, the prospect of a lot of people, I don't think they're talking about 400,000 people, I think they're talking about 160,000 people now being uh, left unemployed as a result of uh, this decision. I mean, it does say a bit about the credibility of Leo Varadkar that he would change so dramatically, make such a volt fast in the space of two weeks. And does it say something about the authority of Cabinet and about the uh, sense that this government knows what it's doing in the face, of course, of a very asymmetric and unpredictable challenge that's posed by this virus? Yeah, I do think the authority of of cabinet is somewhat diminished uh, in light of what's happened over the last two weeks. Um, it's not a fatal blow in in any way. Um, it's just it is it was an astonishing uh, U turn that we saw on Monday, especially when you listen back to that clip that you just played. I mean, some of the points that Leo Varadkar is making are really quite obvious that the impact would be too big, that it wasn't in line with the government's stepwise plan, um, and that hospital the hospitals aren't overwhelmed. I suppose a key thing that he said um, that in that clip that you played is that at the, that that stage there hadn't been a dramatic escalation in figures enough to warrant the kind of change that the National Public Health Emergency Team had recommended. And if you cast your mind back to that time, people were speculating: how did we get from you know level three, level two to this recommendation for level five? And there was a lot of surprise about it. And a lot of people were wondering, was it anything to do with the return of Tony Holan? Did he take a stronger line? What did the rest of the public health team think? And I suppose now with, with the fullness of time, um, we have a different picture um, because those figures have changed. And, you know, what Leo Varadkar referenced in terms of hospitalizations and the narrative that the hospitals um, are not overwhelmed, that's true to a certain extent. You know, at the weekend when Paul Reid was in a talking, briefing government figures, you know, he had five main points. Um, and he did say that they were coping, that um, the hospital system was coping for now, um, that intensive care units were coping. But, and I think this is an important point, um, he talked about the risk. He talked about the risk of what might happen, the risk of the way things were going. So, you know, he was saying that, you know, that there was a trend of rising admissions. That in, in and of itself wasn't overwhelmingly concerning, but there were concerns about the age of the people who were being admitted, uh, specifically those over 65. And we know um, that those over 65 suffer uh, worse with COVID-19. So there was a second point he made, and that was about the length of time the COVID patients spend in hospitals. Uh, and that has a knock-on impact, obviously, on the rest of the, the capacity in the system. Um, he talked about how they were starting to see that elective procedures um, were being impacted, which hadn't previously been the case. You know, they'd managed to get a lot of non-COVID healthcare back up and running. Um, and in terms of intensive care, again, the word risk. There was a risk that this was going to happen. And I think really the writing was on the wall for the government when the NEFIT made the first recommendation for a level five, because 
It was obvious that the cases were only going upwards at that point. It was obvious they weren't going to step back from that recommendation. In fact, that they would make the recommendation again. The second time they made that recommendation, it was for six weeks. And that really shocked people. And, you know, when you have a public health team consistently coming out with this advice and the figures going in the wrong direction, I think it was inevitable that politicians would have to bow to that eventually. The difference between the second time and the first time is that politicians had time to think it over. They had time to come up with a plan. They had time to tell people, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to get out of this. Also, here's what businesses can do. Um, And they had communications uh, ready to go. And you know they have been criticised fairly and rightly um, for getting that wrong. So I think they wanted to take their time a little bit with, with getting the message right, which I personally think was the right thing to do. So, you know... Basically, what I'm saying is it was inevitable that they would have to catch up with public health advice. And if you talk to public health um, doctors um, who who mostly speak privately about this, they speak about a sense of denial in government about how bad things are. And they they think that politicians have had to play catch up with the reality of the situation. Um, The problem is that there are these broader societal implications and they're absolutely massive. And that's the government's job to take that into account and and counter and balance the public health advice. It's not an easy job because it really comes down to the same question of lives versus livelihoods. I wouldn't envy anybody who has to make the decisions that were made this week on Monday. Um, So, you know, I think at the end of the day, we are where we are in terms of the five, the the six-week lockdown. As Pat mentioned earlier on, the real concern now, um, beyond the cost and beyond all of the, the social implications, physically and mentally for the population, is... When we're done, we're not going to emerge into December into some sort of COVID free land where everybody celebrates Christmas and everyone flies home to see their family. And we're all sitting around a big table having a great time and, you know, saying, wasn't that awful? Aren't we glad we're through the other side? The the fear that the politicians have is actually we'll still have a relatively high number of cases, maybe enough to move down levels. But because of the impact of Christmas, people moving around, people seeing their family more and rightfully so. When we get to January, we're going to face this situation again. And there's a sense of despair about how much how much longer we can uh, go through this cycle. Um, and that's why you see such a focus on the vaccines, because there's, you know, economically speaking, really interesting to hear Pascal Donoghue during the week basically say we need a vaccine. We cannot afford all of these massive state spending schemes and supports. We need a vaccine. So I think all the hopes are pinned on that. Um, which doesn't give you a world of optimism. That was such a gloomy um, take. <laughs> Sorry. Well, we'll return to that yo-yo phenomenon and also a point that was raised by Fintan O'Toole uh, in a moment. But first, I want to tell our listeners about a special live Inside Politics podcast taking place next week on Thursday, the 29th of October at 7pm. Hugh Linehan will be joined by New York Times columnist Maureen Dowd and our own Washington correspondent, Suzanne Lynch. And they'll be talking about the US presidential election, how it's going, what it all means and what condition the US is in after four years of Donald Trump's presidency. It'll be live in audio and video at 7pm and there'll be a question and answer session afterwards. And that's one that really sets the uh, juices going. Tickets are on sale now and there's a special discounted rate for subscribers. To find out more, go to irishtimes.com forward slash inside stroke politics stroke live. And you can find that link beneath this podcast in your podcast player or on SoundCloud. So from one famous columnist, Maureen Dowd, to another, to Fintan O'Toole. One of the points, Jennifer, that he raised yesterday was an interesting one. He talked about the composition 
of all the groups who are making the decisions that are critical uh, to uh, the state's response uh, to this virus. And he essentially said that they are uh, testosterone laden, uh, if I can put it in in that way, that they're all men, that there seems to be a a lack of a female voice. And perhaps you can come in on this as well, uh, Pat. Um, Do you think that makes any material difference? Is that just optics? Or do you think that the focus of decision making is not broad enough, is too narrow and is perhaps too linear? Well, I suppose there's a couple of questions there. There's the specific gender question and there's the question about broader input from other parts of uh, of society. And I suppose another point that Finton uh, has been making regularly in his columns since the spring is that the the government's uh, pre-prepared and uh, uh, you know and previously operational system for dealing with national emergencies, the one that dealt with the structure that dealt with the uh, the, the various storms that um, shut down the country a few times in recent years, and uh, and was specifically designed uh, to to handle a pandemic that that system was completely mothballed and the essentially ad hoc system of Neffed was uh, was set up. And interestingly, not so much the weekend just gone, but over the previous weeks when the government was at odds with Neffed, this was something that one tended to hear from within government uh, with, with some frequency that the structure of the public health advisor's alone advising government on, um, on, on what should be done without a broader input was something that, uh, that, that needed to be changed. But uh, so, you know, I think that, you know, I think that question that uh, Fintan O'Toole has raised about why the government's previously operational emergency structures were junked, that's never really been, uh, been answered. And uh, I, I certainly think that it would now perhaps it would be, you know, too unwieldy for um, uh, or it was thought that it was it would be too unwieldy for the present circumstances. But the question hasn't really been answered as to uh, as, as to why it was it was got, gotten rid of. And we've discussed it on this podcast with with Finton before Um uh, on the subject of uh, of gender, it's my understanding actually that it wasn't the case that there was uh, that the room was entirely male. That uh, there was uh, a couple of women in it who act as uh, advisors, and of course the Taoiseach's most important um, official is a uh, politically appointed official at any rate is Deirdre Galan, who's his chief of staff, who I understand attended uh, that meeting as. Did Stephen Donnelly's uh, advisor Susan Mitchell? But um, I suppose that's 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 a footnote. The decision makers, the ultimate decision makers, are the members of the government, and you know we know that um, that the that the makeup of the government, just like the makeup of the doll from which it is drawn, is uh, is overwhelmingly is overwhelmingly and disproportionately male we also know that we uh in general you know executive bodies 
get better decisions, whether they be company boards or, or, or governments, get better decisions when they have a broader range, not just gender, but uh, a broader range of uh, of of inputs, and uh, and I I don't see any reason why that wouldn't be the case now. But I guess that is a whole other order of uh, of, of of discussion. You might not want to be drawn down this morning. You know, I mean, there is there is the suggestion that uh, around. I've seen it a bit that well, you know, there would be more emphasis on childcare and less on GEA if. Uh, there were more women involved in it. I, I think that's a little trite, uh, to be honest. But the broader point of um, a better decision making amongst more uh, diverse executive bodies, I think, is um, an incontestable one. Yeah, I mean, it's indisputable, Jennifer, that that all of the principles involved, the public principles, at least that we see, uh, are male, not just within government, but also in the upper echelons of of NAFET and the uh, HSE. And I mean, it is, uh, Finton brought it up yesterday, I think it's an issue, you know, that needs to be uh, interrogated and perhaps uh, addressed. And perhaps there is a, you know, I mean, they, they might arrive at exactly the same uh, similar similar decision, uh, but there might be uh, changes in terms of, of uh, nuance, changes in terms of, of uh, emphasis, uh, uh, if it were slightly more broad. Yeah, 100%. And to be honest, I think it's... Uh a crying shame that all of the senior figures that we saw going into government buildings on Saturday are male. It makes me feel kind of depressed, actually, when I see that. Um, not because I think that women should be in these senior positions because they're women. It's just because there are very capable women in senior positions, just not at the top, um, across our health service and across um, our across the government and across politics. And there's, I think we really need to ask ourselves, why? Why is it that all of the figures who are making these huge, huge decisions, they are men? And people kind of, there was, just from watching people, the commentary online at the weekend, there were people online kind of saying, well, so what? You know, it's just the way it is. It's not any deliberate thing, but like it's it's, system, it's systematic. And I definitely think that there are questions to be asked. I don't have the answers to those questions about why um, all of those figures uh, are, are men. I wish I did, but but I don't. And I think, you know, there is an argument to be made that women, particularly at this stage of the pandemic, maybe feel that some of the big decisions um, that affect their lives, uh, that they've been a bit of an afterthought. Um, my colleague, Elaine Lachlan in The Examiner, actually did a very good piece about this, where she kind of pointed out that, um, you know, seven months after the first case of COVID, where we are, that the, the breast check screening service is on pause, that uh, pregnant women still can't have their partners during early labor or during key appointments. Student nurses, around 90% of whom are, are women, are not being paid at the moment for working on wards. So, you know, I think they're very valid points. Um, and as to the wider argument about having uh, women in leadership positions, you know, there was an analysis done um, by the, I think it was the World Economic Forum, and they looked at 194 countries during the COVID pandemic to, to see, um, to basically analyse the leadership. And they found that the countries led by women did have systematically and significantly better COVID outcomes. And they found that um, even when outliers were taken out, that actually um, female leaders in those countries acted quicker and they acted more, they acted more decisively, especially in terms of lockdown um, and, you know, I, I don't think that that should be ignored. You Obviously, women are able for the job. They should be doing the job. Why aren't they doing the job? 
Absolutely. And just talking about the, the job in hand, uh, Jennifer, um, one of the things, one of the points that ministers were making to me over the weekend when I was working was that this uh, particular uh, uh, uptick or, or surge or wave is materially different than the one in March. Of course, the figures are very high and a very good indicator of that was the fact that the uh, HSE contact and tracing team was overwhelmed during the course of the weekend and had to farm out 2,500 uh, referrals uh, to the actual people who were infected themselves, which is slightly worrying, to put it mildly. Uh, but the, the uh, restrictions in Level 5 are not quite as restrictive as the ones uh, in March. Uh, children are still in school. Children are still allowed to exercise in uh, parks. Uh, there isn't the same level of lockdown in terms of retail outlets. Slightly more uh, uh, retailers have been uh, defined as essential now uh, than back then. And then we have new measures coming in, uh, such as the one that you were first to report on last night. Uh, the, there's these fines uh, for those who hold uh, house parties. And then the other thing that's materially different is that even though there's been a big upsurge in cases uh, the number of hospitalizations, ICU admissions and fatalities hasn't followed the pattern of last March. Maybe people are better prepared now in terms of protecting the vulnerable. Uh, perhaps the, the bulk of those who have uh, got the virus this time happen to be people from a younger cohort. And Philip Nolan said this morning, and we have to be cognizant of that, that sometimes the death rate is a drag factor. It happens several weeks afterwards. But the thing is that we have the same kind of response to a slightly different uh, threat and uh, there has been some negative political reaction, people saying that it's just too blunt, uh, that it's not subtle enough, that we need to look at different ways, such as perhaps uh, curfews, more focused interventions, looking at the cohorts who are responsible really uh, uh, for, for increasing it, uh, better focus on, on, uh, on testing and tracing and making that as comprehensive as possible. And one of the points that was being made by Paul Cullen today uh, in his column was that the politicians missed a trick during the summer. They were so uh, involved in government formation that they didn't really use the time uh, when the COVID numbers fell uh, to think up of a long-term strategy uh, to deal uh, with COVID in the absence of a vaccine emerging. So out of all that, maybe just look at the reaction and look ha at how things perhaps are materially different this time than they were in March and April. Yeah, I, I think that there are definitely questions to be asked about why the health service didn't scale up the testing capacity and put in place the structures uh, that were needed. Because if you remember over the summer, there was a lot of talk, speculation and fear about a second wave. This isn't something that took us by surprise. We sort of knew this was going to happen. We saw the experience in other countries and, you know, we had a, a good sense that this was coming down the tracks, particularly in the winter. You remember a lot of the commentary was around how are we going to cope with our health service, which doesn't cope anyway every winter, combine that with COVID. So it's not something that snuck up on us. And there, the evidence points to the contrary, that actually a lot of the um, infrastructure in relation to testing was um, dismantled to a certain degree uh, rather than being scaled up. And we're seeing the ramifications of that with Simon Carswell's story, which which broke online last night and I would think which shocked a lot of people um, because we're not talking about a small number of um, people here. We're talking about thousands. And, and you know, anyone who has read the story will see that this relates to the close contacts of confirmed cases um, and and them not being contacted because the system was overwhelmed. We shouldn't be at that point. And I think that that goes without saying. Um, and, and 
that is that is something which will play out over the next couple of days. I think that there was alarm amongst government um, figures last night when they read the story. Like I was texting a few sources of mine and they were shocked and they were worried and they were anxious about what today is going to bring and what tomorrow is going to bring in terms of inside the doll and uh, what the Minister for Health will say. So we'll see how that pans out. Um, but to your wider point about the the threat being the same or the threat being different, you know, we are seeing a different approach now, actually, because at the start of the pandemic, the um, I suppose the message was we are all in this together. And, you know, we all had a sense of social solidarity. We were all a bit terrified and we didn't know what was coming down the tracks and we didn't know anything really about this disease. And everybody did, by and large, lock themselves in their homes and stay at home. That's not really happening now. And you can see the government's acknowledgement of this by the fact that they are bringing in this new legislation, um, which you mentioned there, which has um, a range of different fines for different things. So house parties, which was a big topic of conversation um, over the last couple of weeks, all this talk of people having house parties and it driving up the figures. Weeks and weeks ago, we were told that there was nothing the government could do about this because there's a constitutional right. You've got a constitutional rights in relation to your home. And Gardaí cannot come into your home without a warrant. So they can't come along and break up a house party. Now, what they're saying they're going to do is Gardaí can come to your door. They can knock on the door. They can ask you to stop the party and hope that you do it. But they still can't go into your home, Um, you know, which begs the question of, Will people just not answer the door? Um, but I, I think they'll be able to get around that in um, in other ways that you'll see kind of pan out in the legislation. So we have that. We have legislation in relation to if you break your five kilometre um, travel restriction. We have legislation in relation to face masks, wearing face coverings and fines if you don't wear those on public transport or in retail. You know, back in the first day of the pandemic, we didn't even know if face masks were the right thing to do or to wear. So we're in a different phase. We're in the phase where the government really obviously believes that enforcement is necessary because the social solidarity is fraying and it's a road that they don't want to go down. And it really and truly is a road that the guards don't want to go down. You know, that their final um, response is enforcement. Uh, it's, it's never the first response. The first response is to ask people to comply and hope that they do. So this is the new phase we're in. This is the, the response of the government in terms of enforcement and We'll see over the next few weeks whether upon it in the UK um, uh, measures to, to to stop house parties didn't really work. I mean, we heard stories about people who were factoring in the price of a fine into their house party and charging people money before they came in so that they wouldn't have to worry about it. <laughs> Must have been great house parties. So I'm not saying that will happen here. <laughs> but Is the government confident that the, the actual legislation will be in place and operational before the end of that six week term or is it just gestural at this stage? It's not gestural, but there is a problem about getting it enacted soon. There's a, there's a lot of other bills competing for priority. I don't. It won't be through this week. It might be through by the end of next week. Basically, it won't be in place for the start tonight of level five uh, lockdown. And uh, I suppose to a certain degree that can't be helped. A lot of these things are... You know, politics now, as we know, it's changing every hour. You can't expect everybody to do everything all of the time and have 100% perfect response. But I think there is a pressure on them to get this in soon. Uh, but there are previous fines already. And there, there's already legislation to, at fines of €2,500 for, for certain um, for certain uh, offences. So, you know, it's not like there is no legislation either. OK, and finally, Pat, we'll turn to a question that you were exploring uh, yesterday. It has to do... Uh, with the future. And uh, to just introduce that, we're going to play a, a clip 
uh, of an interview that Tony Holohan, the chief medical officer, gave to Brian Dobson on the News at One yesterday. I'm sorry to cut across you, Dr. Hulan, but I'm, does Neville have a plan for living with COVID that doesn't involve, in effect, rolling lockdowns? Uh, so the plan will be that when when it is necessary, we'll make whatever advice is, 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 is required to intervene. Now, obviously, what we want to intervene with the growth of the infection, we want to maintain the infection in a controlled uh, at, a, at a control level, which is which means keeping the case numbers low mm. and within a level within our public health departments around the country have done terrific work. You'll see some of the mapping work that they've done in, that, in some of the, 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 the public uh, discussion about cases and that have come in from other countries and, and how it has spread once one case that was reported yesterday that led to 56 further infections. Mm, That's all the work that's done by the public health teams. They generate that intelligence and that allows them to take control actions. And what we really need to be able to do is to spot these infections when they become established at a local level early, take local interventions at a local level that stop that becoming established as community transmission. Now, um, perhaps uh, he he was kind of uh, uh, tiptoeing around the subject there a little, but Professor Philip Nolan was asked by Gavin Jennings of Morning Ireland this morning uh, about whether or not uh, the country would be yo-yoing in and out of lockdown. And he he, he said he didn't accept that definition, but he said it, it was important to be honest with people that if following December and January we find cases rising again, we may we may need to intervene again. And he said if we intervene more quickly this time, the length of the lockdown essentially may be shorter. Uh, people need to behave differently while the virus is with us. Uh, you were uh, raising the possibility of, of a new lockdown uh, in, in, in the new year, perhaps uh, January, February, March of, of next year. And this uh, government uh, trying to deal with this notion of, of rolling lockdowns. And that's going to be crucial as well, because we have to wait to see how people react to this particular lockdown but um, will a further lockdown in the spring be politically palatable? Will people's patients be wearing thin? Will the patients of politicians uh, be wearing thin? Will the sense of social solidarity have dissipated completely uh, by that time? What, what's your take on all of that, Pat? Uh, yeah, well, you know, we, we we like to cheer people up just when they were getting used to the idea of one lockdown. Then we raised the prospect of uh, of another one in January. But this is very much... Implicit in the NEFID documents that we have seen and I'm given to understand quite explicit in the discussions between ministers and senior NEFID officials over the weekend. Specifically, uh, it was discussed, I understand, at that meeting on the Saturday uh, that we referred to earlier. And Basically, in rough terms, I suppose the plan or the expectation appears to be Lockdown for the next six weeks, get the numbers down. Country goes on the lash for December, lockdown again in January. That oversimplifies things and it's contingent on numbers going where people expect them to do. But that's more or less, I think, what we're looking at. And yesterday in the Dáil, Micheál Martin more or less confirmed that when he said in answer to questions by uh, party leaders that if the numbers go up again in December, which is what you would expect um, uh, once the lockdown is eased, and certainly, you know, given the uh, uh, given the given the practices that are common uh, around that time of year, you would expect there to be a high degree of socialising and therefore ideal conditions for the virus to spread. There's also going to be a certain amount of how can I describe it. 
pent up energy by the time we get to December uh, amongst uh, amongst many people for uh, for Christmas socialising. And the problem with that is that inevitably it will lead to uh, uh, it will lead to your case numbers going up, hospital admissions going up, ICUs going up, deaths and eventually deaths going up, and therefore we will be confronted with the sort of um, with the sort of situation that uh, that we're in now and has given rise to this lockdown. That's not to say that that is inevitable, but it is suggested that something along those lines is is what is predicted by the NEFID modelling, and it's very clear. Uh, I think that that approach, the lockdown period of restrictions being lifted back to period of restrictions, whether a full-scale lockdown or not, that is more or less what we are looking at for the foreseeable future until at such time as I think you said earlier, Harry uh, was envisaged by uh, by Pascal Donnelly when he said that 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 we have to wait for vaccine. The problem with that, both economically and politically, is it is entirely out of the government's hands. It's not, it's not quite a Deus ex machina, but it's something that the government has no control over. And even if uh, a virus is, um, even if a virus is discovered and refined and improved and can ultimately be marketed there is going to be a lag of some months before it is uh, uh, it, it is generally available so i'm afraid that that's what we're looking at for the first it would not be an irish times um podcast without the scholar from clonmel uh giving us a little bit of uh latin and i know uh, you love a bit translating of latin, that Harry. roughly uh with one leap uh, he was free jennifer the last word to you a third lockdown, is that sellable or should the government at this time be exploring alternative, perhaps uh, less uh, explicit, less draconian ways of trying to uh, live with the virus on the long term, especially as you said earlier, a vaccine isn't imminent in the near future? Yeah, I absolutely don't think we should be pinning our hopes on a vaccine. Uh, I mean, you know, for various different reasons, not only because there's no sign of it being imminent, uh, imminently available even. Um, we don't know how many people will actually take up the vaccine. You know, we've seen that people have concerns and that will become an issue in time um, as we see it play out. So yeah, they should absolutely explore. And I think they really, really want to explore a, an, an alternative to a third lockdown. There is zero political appetite for a third lockdown. There is zero appetite for a third lockdown amongst the public, uh, and that being said, it's it the onus is on them to 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 I think to get back to basics. To be honest with you, you know, but you heard what Tony Holohan said there. We should be at a point whereby there are local outbreaks, there are local public health teams that can manage it. It's controlled. If it gets above a certain level in local area, we have county by county lockdowns. That's the way. Uh, it should be. That's the way it's working in other countries. And um, it shouldn't be the crude blunt instrument of a national lockdown. But you know that like. Just to say that requires more than just the government setting a plan and putting in place supports and coming up with X, Y, Z solution. It also requires the public to kind of cop on a little bit. I mean, a lot of people are doing everything that's asked of them and they're absolutely devastated now. And also they're fed up because they're hearing you must do more, you must do more. And they've done everything they can. But there are still a lot of people who are kind of just saying now, I know people who are just saying, oh, look, 
I've been through it. I'll go and visit my friends or whatever if I want. I think we all need to kind of cop on and realize there's a lot of power in our own hands too. We should take it. We should use it. And if we don't want a third lockdown, then we shouldn't be doing things that will lead us that will lead us there. I don't think anybody wants to hear that. But that's my uh, that's my that's my hot take, Harry. Okay, well, uh, and the hot take it was uh, too, and uh, with the Deus Ex Machina uh, device that brings us to an artificial end, uh, uh, otherwise known as the producer, shouting into my ear to tell me to stop it, uh, I bring this edition of Inside Politics to an end. And thanks so much to Jennifer and Pat for their uh, wonderful uh, contributions. Uh, Declan Conlon produced the show and JJ Vernon was on sound. Goodbye and thank you very much indeed for listening. 